All right, good evening. Why don't we come on in and find our places? Kind of a funny thing happened prior to Alan teaching last week. A few days before, my wife asked me, uh, do you know what Alan's teaching on? I said, no. She said, well, what if he's teaching on the same thing? And what's the worst that can happen? You know, I would have to start from scratch. But uh, when he said that we were going to go into Jeremiah, I kind of settled in. And then he brought up a topic that I'm going to use. And I said, wait a minute, you know, what's going on? Where are you going with this? It was the same topic, but it was a different point. So um, about five minutes later, he said, turn to 1 Kings 3, 5. And I thought, no. (laughs) But it it turns out that, you know, the, the thought was similar, but it was no worries. So... I'm going to open with a question tonight, and for those of you that were here Sunday, this is a rhetorical question, so I won't be throwing any candy. <laughs> now, so please, no answer expected. But um, how many uh, would think or have thought that your problems would be solved or you'd be a lot happier if you won, say, between one and 315 million in the lottery? Now, I know it's, there's, we won't go into, uh, you know, the pitfalls of that, but just for the sake of illustration. So, yeah, the obvious answer for many is, I would, but um, these statistics don't really support that. I uh, looked up lottery stories, and here's four of the, of the top ten. Aruj Khan, he won $1 million, and he was dead before he could cash the check. It was uh, deemed natural causes, but upon the family's insistence, they did a a thorough investigation and found out it was cyanide cyanide poisoning. The next guy you may have remembered or heard of, Andrew Jack Whitaker. He won $315 million in a Powerball lottery. Uh, Shortly after that, his his granddaughter's boyfriend was found dead in his house of a drug overdose. Three months later, his granddaughter was dead of the same fate. And five years later, his daughter was dead. And it it was just presumable that it was from some overindulgence. And at the end, it says he sobbed and said, I wished I'd have torn that ticket up. And one more guy, the third guy, Billy Bob Harrell, he won $31 million. Everything seemed to be good at first. He says that he took his family for a celebration vacation to Hawaii. He bought homes for friends and family. Um, he, don't, he, um, he bought houses and cars for family and friends, and then he made some bad money deals. And a year later, his son found him of a, dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. His uh, words to the financial advisor shortly before his death was, winning the lottery was the worst thing that ever happened to me. That doesn't seem to, to stand to logic, but... And another guy, he won six, and incidentally, this guy, uh, Billy Bob Harrell, was broke in 20 months. The fourth guy here, William Post, he won $16.2 million and he was broke in three months. He was quoted as saying, everybody dreams of winning the money, but nobody, nobody, uh, nobody realizes the nightmares or the problems that come out of the woodwork. He says, I was much happier when I was broke. So that's just one thing that we're going to be covering tonight, one aspect that Solomon deals with in 
trying to find out the meaning of life, what fulfills, and it's not the lottery, but uh, he will deal with money in a, in a portion of the scripture. So turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, I'm going to give a little bit of context. Eventually we'll get there. The Hebrew title for the word speaker is Koheleth, and it means it's interpreted preacher. Some call it teacher, and it's, it's also in the Greek, it's ecclesia. That's where we get the name Ecclesiastes, and it means one that gathers the congregation, and it's especially for religious purposes. Some say that it's better translated debater because the way that he puts out these arguments, he, uh, he goes through some in-depth studies, some experiments on, what, on what's the meaning of life because he truly was perplexed. He had walked away from the Lord, and it kind of stands to reason. So there's differing views on who really wrote the book. His name is not given in the text, but there's many clues that we'll look at later that prove or that point to that. So let's look at the history of Solomon. There's not a lot on him from the time that he was born to the time that he took the throne or assumed the throne from his father. He was born from the adulterous relationship between David and Bathsheba. Uh, the prophet Nathan called David on it. He repented. There was an immediate consequence, and there would be consequences to come. But he said, God said, you will not die. So he was forgiven, and Solomon was born. The child did die, and then afterwards, Solomon was born. And Second uh, Samuel 12, 24 and 25 give the account of where it says that God loved him. I think that's awesome. He could have been indifferent to him. He could have been, uh, Solomon could have been somewhat of a reproach, even though it wasn't his fault. But it says he sent the prophet Nathan to bless him and to give him a name, Jedidiah, which meant beloved of the Lord. So that's just another example of incredible mercy that God shows when, when there's repentance. And he also chose to use him to continue the line of David, to whom we'd have the Messiah. So God doesn't hold grudges, and when there's true repentance, God forgives. So next, we see Solomon as a young man who has just assumed the throne from his father. And 1 Kings, there's the part that, that um, I was talking about. 1 Kings 3.5, it was a prayer. God came to, or it, it was... Um, God came to Solomon in a dream and said, ask what you would have me give you. So Solomon, in humility, prayed for wisdom and discernment to guide God's so great of a people. And that was very pleasing to God because he didn't ask for a long life for himself. He didn't ask for riches, and he didn't ask for the life of his enemies. So he, as you know, he said, I'll grant you those things, and plus I'm going to add riches and honor. He says, so much that there's going to be no kings like you, before you, or after you. So Solomon reigned for 40 years, and during that time, it was a complete time of peace and prosperity, which in a way it's good, but probably for him it wasn't so good. Too much time and too much money. Uh, his wealth was unmatched. It says that in one year he brought in 666 talents of gold, and I'll just go through a, a portion of what he had. It was just, it was on and on and on. It says that he had 40,000 stalls for horses and chariots, 
And there's a footnote, you know, some say that it's 4,000, but whether it's 40,000 or four, that's a lot of horses and, and chariots. He had 12,000 horsemen. Uh, there was merchant ships that he had, it says, that would come around every three years with uh, gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys, all for his enjoyment. The Bible says also that his wisdom excelled. He was an accomplished man. He wrote books, plays, poems, and 3,000 proverbs, most of which are lost because there's fewer than 600 recorded. He wrote 1,005 songs, and we have three, three left. There's a Song of Solomon, there's Psalm 72, and Psalm 127. Now it's thought that he wrote Song of Solomon first when his love was strong for God early in the beginning. And then he wrote Proverbs shortly after that in his wisdom. And then that it's thought that he wrote Ecclesiastes late in life as a seal and testimony of his repentance for his apostasy. Because as we'll see, he did walk away and really with a vengeance. Now there's differing opinions as to why the book was written. What does it really mean? There's uh, many that feel that it's just a pessimistic, cynical look at life. One of an agnostic. And the atheists really love this book because there's so much in here that they like to look at as uh, the Word of God. But this is man's perspective strictly. The uh, traditional view is that it's a work like I said, of late repentance to enforce the warnings of his bitter experience. And as we look into it, you can see that it was a grievous and bitter experience for him to try to wrestle with. What is this life about? He could find no meaning in it. But towards the end, he does prove that life is a gift from God and it's to be joy enjoyed and satisfied. So as we see in Kings and Chronicles, you know, the, uh, when the king did evil in the sight of the Lord, the people would follow suit. And Solomon knew that he was in a position to have stumbled the people and because of his idolatry um, and many other things we'll look at. So hence the gathering of the congregation here. He's going to set the record straight. He's going to reveal all his observations. We're not going to be able to look at all of them because he takes this case from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 12. And if you think Pastor Ross does a long sermon, these guys sat through probably 12 hours of it. <laughs> now, who knows, but. So, uh, in all the things that he tried to figure out what this life means, uh, he tried philosophy. In his wisdom, he had abilities like none other. He became a botanist, he was a biologist, a uh, scientist, an astronomer, an ichthyologist, uh, one that, that researches fish. And along with the wisdom of government that he got way back when, uh, he, it says that he got a, a, a wisdom and a very great insight and depth of understanding that was measureless as the sand of the sea. Now, do you remember the, the first challenge that he had? When he was reigning, there was a, the story is there was a, a couple of harlots that came to him. One had a baby. And the other, they lived in the same house, in the same room. Another had a baby. Shortly after that, she rolled over and suffocated her. So she's traded babies in the middle of the night. And it says that uh, they came to Solomon and, 
And uh, the mother was grieved because she had been past the dead baby. And she laid out the case before Solomon. He quickly just said, bring me a sword. And so a sword was brought to him. And he said, well, cut the baby in two, give half to you and half to you. Now, certainly he had no intention of following through, but the mother said, no, no, please give the baby to her that he will live. And the other lady was kind of indifferent, so he said, here's the mom. So commentators say that despite this great wisdom that he got, he did not get any spiritual wisdom, and that becomes apparent because of uh, how he walked away from the Lord and walked in carnality. He knew the law, and he knew it well. Deuteronomy 7.3 gave instruction that, that the Jews were not to marry any of the heathen women says, do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn the heart away from following me. And also in Deuteronomy 17, 16 and 17, he gave explicit direction or instructions for kings that said they were not to multiply horses to themselves. Solomon was a horse collector. He would have them shipped over from Egypt, the finest in the world. And he was not to multiply wives to himself. He broke that commandment. He was not to accumulate large amounts of, of silver and gold. I'm not sure how to reconcile that with God promising to give him riches or, or to give him wealth, but I think that he just went above and beyond because there's, there's uh, not only were the buildings that he built inlaid with gold, overlaid inside and what have you, but he says that there was silver laying around as stones. So. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8, gives the account of how God was angry with that. And here, Ecclesiastes is unique in that it's the only book in the Bible that is from man's perspective. It's under the sun. So that's specifically from, from Solomon's view, and because he had departed and didn't have spiritual wisdom, he's looking at this on his own. What's the meaning of life? And he felt his wealth and everything that he had, his excesses, were so dissatisfying that it became extremely perplexing to him. Now I'm going to be reading from the New King James tonight, and I have a happy face next to it, not a frown face. So I usually like the King James, but... What I'm going to do is read through. We're going to go and see what we can glean through this verse by verse. Sometimes it'll be passage by passage. And we'll cover right around a close to a chapter and a half, time permitting. So verse 1. And let's just pray real quick as before we get into it that God will give understanding. Father, we do just commit this time to you and pray that you would give us understanding into your word insights, Lord, and, and that we would glean what it is you have for us tonight. We pray for your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So although he's not named specifically, it says that uh, he was king in Jerusalem. So David had many sons, but only one was king in Jerusalem. And verse 16 gives another description that lends itself to him being the author. It says, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled in Jerusalem before me. 
That was a promise that God gave him. He says in chapter 12, 9, that he pondered and searched out and set in order many Proverbs. So he, of course, was the primary author of Proverbs. There was only a couple of other guys, uh, Agur and Lemuel, and then there was a couple of unidentified authors. So I'm not sure how anybody can usurp that from him, but nonetheless. Verse 2, he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now this is not the same uh, context that we use that word today. It's not used as conceit, but just emptiness, meaningless, futility. So is he a pessimist? Does he just see no hope here? He says there's nothing more meaningless than life. Now this, again, this is his perspective before repentance. We have to remember that it's under the sun, so this isn't God speaking. It's, it's ordained by God. It's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. However, it's still man. So verse 3, he says, What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Now, the word prophet, it's unique to the book. It's yithron, and it means what is left over, what advantage, or, it's, or advantage. So what advantage does man have after he does these accomplishments? Or accomplishments? And the word labor is used in uh, laboring to the point of exhaustion, not just a little project. So he says, what does he gain? What remains to satisfy? What endures? And his answer usually was zero, nothing. Now it seems a little uh, doom and gloom, and it will continue that way. You know, I'm going to have to pull from other verses because I don't have time to go through the, all 12 books. But he he's, is eventually going to point out the futility of men trying to find this satisfaction and meaning by themselves, by their own efforts. Or just a little hint, in 2.24 he says, Nothing is better for a man than he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good of his labor. This I saw that it was from the hand of God. So that's encouraging. And it is different than the phrase that we've often heard where he says, uh, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. No, that's not the one. <laughs> the atheists love that one. but okay, I'm going to read four through seven. One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rose. The wind goes toward the south and turns about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place, where which, to the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. So this is just one more argument for the fleeting nature of life, these endless cycles that go on and on. Does anybody listen to J. Vernon McGee? Yeah. He says, uh, he notes that there's a stability in the earth that seems like it's forever. It's always there, as far as man can tell. Uh, but men are transitory in nature. And he says, if you look, just from man's perspective, if you look at life, from life alone, or terms of this life only, says that man is the most colossal failure in God's creation. Really, it makes a lot of sense, you know. He goes on to say, uh, 
he's just around a few years, you know. <laughs> I couldn't resist, but. Well, he says, well, the Redwoods, he said, some of them have been here for, you know, 2,500 years since the time of Christ. And 1 Peter 2.24, he supports that notion that, or not notion, that correct assumption that our lives here truly are a vapor when you look at eternity. It says in verse, or chapter 1, verse 24, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. Does anybody here have uh, flowers? Do you have, like, peonies? You know, we have some, they just come into their glory. They just look beautiful, and within a week, their, their petals are dropping and they're gone. That's, that's a good representation of life, and I don't know about you, but uh, I remember being a child and having these issues, you know, at about eight years old, thinking, like, life is horrible. You know, my parents are going to get old and die, and then... And then I'm going to, you know, die. Everything seems futile, so I can kind of understand. So here's three proofs that the earth abides forever. He says the, the sun rises, it hurries across the sky, and it goes down. And the same thing in the morning. It's just a, a repetitious cycle. He says it's, it's recorded since the beginning of time in the earliest book known to man, the Bible, day four of creation, that the sun divided the night. It says that the wind follows its circuits just like clockwork. All the rivers flow to the sea and yet it's not full and return again where they started. So commentators say that really it's a remarkable set of statements from a scientific view because uh, a lot of the stuff that he observed here hadn't even been invented yet and it's almost uh, verbatim to the theories that are in place today although that certainly is not his point says he's speaking of a repetition that it's, it's just a monotony a boredom he needs something more than that so Ray Steadman he also says uh, that nature is just nature seems to be a big grinding machine that just goes on and on and that man is supposed to be the crown of creation so that's the that's the perplexing thing that that Solomon's looking at everything's everything's permanent except us Verses 8 through 11. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which may be said, See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. So he notes that all things, well, let me begin with, or back up with, some scholars say of this passage that it's interpreted that life is just restless activity, that man and nature are confined to a circle that he cannot free himself. Does that sound kind of uh, perplexing? There's a depth to a life that man cannot fathom. Well, Solomon, in his observations, he, uh, he found or he observed that human desire is never satisfied. 
Man has an insatiable desire to see more, to hear more, and to see something new, especially. And the entertainment business has thrived on that. Verse 9 and 10 says that there's nothing new under the sun, but really it's something, it's, there's nothing new that, would, that man could say, oh, this is it. This is what satisfies. And mind you, we're still talking apart from God. Thomas Edison said that of his inventions, they were only bringing out the laws of nature. So regarding things that are new, I can't really explain uh, gadgets. I mean, we have gadgets, but all the research, all the philosophers, all the great minds, they all agree with the same thing, that, that all the stuff that we have is, is just regurgitated. Like, uh, for instance, nuclear energy. Who created the atom? God created it. And H.A. Ironside, one of the pastors of, or a longtime pastor of Chicago's Moody Church, said this phrase that if it's new, it's not true. And if it's, <laughs> if it's true, it's not new. And philosopher Marcus Aurelius wrote that all things are of one birth, they're of one form, there's nothing new, all things are common and are quickly over, and everything that comes to pass was always so coming to pass and will take place again. Now, how many of you have heard that um, history repeats itself? Yeah. Well, Solomon says in verse 11, or we ask the question, why do we think it's new? Solomon addressed that in verse 11. He says, there's no remembrance of former things. So I want to read a quote that my father sent me before he passed away. It's just an interesting look at history. It says, the average age of the world's greatest civilizations from the beginning of history has been about 200 years. During those 200 years, these nations always progressed through this following sequence. From bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, and then from dependence back into bondage. So that's kind of along the same lines he's talking about. Okay, now in verses 12 through 18, we'll take a look at that, I'll read it. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that which is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and a grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness, and I have gained more wisdom than all they who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is a grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I was going to turn away from the scientific look and turn to philosophy. So being the wisest, wealthiest man around, Solomon had all the time, he had all the resources to, to look this out, to search this out. So he set his mind to not only observe these things, 
but he looked at it from all angles. He really investigated deep into it. And above that, he says that it was a laborious task. Uh, I like the way that King James puts it. It says it was a grievous task. Now, just reading through the lines, I can see that that's his heart. He is, he is like, uh, like wringing his hands together. This is, this is a real burden for him. And verse 14 states that it was an unsatisfactory conclusion. Pretty much so far, all his observations have been uh, what the King James also calls a, a vexation of spirit. And that's just a grasping at the wind. You know, when you try to get that extra breath, that last breath, just to get that, that peace, it's, it's not coming. Verse 15, um, there's a couple of views on this. That's where he says, that which is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. Uh, looking at a commentary uh, from the pulpit series, it gets really deep. It said... Um, that this guy Hendrickson quotes of the Vulgate as saying that this applies only to morals, where, where it says that perverse men are hardly corrected and the number of fools is infinite. But he goes on to say that the Septuagint, the authorized version, rightly ascertains that it's not referring merely to man's sins and his delinquencies, but also to the perplexities in which he finds himself involved and extrication from which is impracticable or impossible. So basically what that's meaning is uh, some things are just not meant to be figured out. You can't correct everything. There's problems that are unsolvable. And it's also, I've heard it uh, explained as you can't educate somebody that's, that's morally depraved to be morally upright. So... I think he has come to grips with that. He does, later on in the book, he gives indication that he has come to grips with that. In verses 16 through 18, Solomon reiterates that he has used his great position, his great God-given wisdom, which there may be a little bit of pride there, uh, to know more wisdom in this quest, and that he was going to look another direction. He was going to delve into sin and folly to see if to see if this was where it was at and he come to the conclusion that this also was a futile vexation of spirit that grasping at the wind the more he sought to know the more he knew that how little he actually knew and for a man of his god-given position that indeed was frustrating so now uh, disillusion with philosophy, finding out that that led nowhere in this quest. He says, I'm just going to turn my heart to pleasure. Um, but in the same verse, he says, this also was vanity. This was futile. And it's no surprise. You know, this is the fourth time that he said, I set my heart in so many words. The first time was in verse 13. He said, I set my heart to know wisdom. Uh, the second time was I communed with my heart. The third time again was I set my heart. And here this time I set in my heart. So you know what, what the, the Lord says about the heart? And uh, I'll quote Jeremiah. He says that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, who can know it. So, you know, obviously in his pursuits in man's wisdom, apart from God, under the sun, of course he was going to come up with 
this vexation of spirit or this futility this meaningless in all his efforts because uh, in the Old and New Testaments you know the heart is seen as the center of one's spirituality their moral consciousness is their very being so if your heart's not in the right place then the rest of the body just follows suit so really instead of looking to pleasure he would have been much better off to have been looking to the Lord uh, which Again, he will eventually do. But look how much peace that he forfeited uh, in the meanwhile. He was agonized. Of course, it was probably a comfortable agony with all his uh, accommodations. <laughs> no, he was truly, he was, he was tormented. Now, especially this was ironic for a man that, that God loved. God came to him specifically two times in a dream and said, if you will follow my commandments and follow my statutes, I will bless you. The first time he says, I'll bless you with a long life. I'll prolong your days. I'll lengthen your days. The second time the blessing was, if you follow my commands and my statutes, then I'll establish your throne over Israel forever. And that was not to be so. God was angry with him. But he says, I, I won't tear the kingdom completely away from you for your father's sake. And it was only because of the promises to David that he didn't. And uh, we know from the rest of the story that Solomon's uh, son that would succeed him, Rehoboam, he was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not do well. So Solomon says, uh, and he should have known better because in his wisdom earlier, he had written the, all the Proverbs or most of the Proverbs. And 14.3 says, Even in laughter, the heart is sorrowful, and the end of that gladness is grief. So certainly looking for any deep meaning in pleasure is foolish. And I like the way that Warren Wearsby puts it. He says, If you live for pleasure alone, your enjoyment will decrease unless the intensity increases. And that's just the same exact principle that you see with alcoholism, with drug addiction, with gambling. You know, you might start out and then because of that need, that intensity has to rise for any satisfaction or enjoyment that it finally gets to the point of diminishing returns or even uh, bondage. Now, in his pursuit for pleasure, we have to kind of look and uh, imagine considering his wealth, just the immensity of this endeavor that he sought, this experiment to follow pleasure. Now, just speaking of his provisions on a daily basis, not to mention doing anything extra special, says that his provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and a core was 10 bushels, so that's 300 bushels of flour 60 core of meal, that's 600 bushels, so together that's 900 bushels of grains that they used to make the bread for his house. 10 grain-fed oxen or fatted oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep, not, and that says beside deer, gazelle, roebucks, and all kinds of fatted fowl, fatted birds. Now, can you imagine if he's looking for pleasure and he says, hey, we're going to have a party tonight. Let's do something special. <laughs> so, but commentators say really that 
that uh, Vegas or Tahoe, you know, Harris never had anything on him with their extravagant shows. A man that was of his immense wealth uh, had the best entertainers. He had the most lavish accommodations. But uh, his observation was that in the end, and this is not his words, but I think it's the same effect. It seems that the baby that sits on the kitchen floor and just bangs pots together gets the same enjoyment than after all his efforts because it was futile, it was meaningless, empty, and left, left him off even worse than before. So it says that he tried uh, drinking wine to see if that was where the meaning was. But it says that he guided his heart with wisdom, so that sounds like a smart move. And apparently it was, he doesn't elaborate on that, so it was a thumbs down experience. But um, I've got a note here to read verse 10. Yeah, you, uh, you also have to kind of let your imagination go with what lengths he went to find this pleasure. It says that uh, in verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward for my labor. So I think it's that, uh, it's that mentality people try to play on today. You deserve it. Um, but he found that meaningless. So now in, let's see. Well, I forgot to read the first two patches or uh, first two passages or, or scriptures in chapter two, but that's in the in, uh, same standing as last sermon, so I'm in good shape. I'll begin with, uh, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, or I will test you with gladness or mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this was also vanity. And I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplished or accomplish? So now I'll read uh, verses uh, 4 and 8, or 4 through 8. I made my great works, I built myself houses, and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove, and I acquired male and female servants, and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of the kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So now it says that he immersed himself in great building projects, and his accomplishments were many, because it says that he built cities, uh, he built the elaborate temple, his house, and even though the, these achievements were of epic proportions, they were huge, his observation was that it was still meaningless. There was no satisfaction. Once the work was finished, there was a sense of futility and that success is full of promise until men get it. Solomon went on to several more experiments, but now his repentant heart was becoming visible. 
Now, I alluded to money. Um, that's in chapter 5. We're not really going to be able to get to that. Uh, and it was uh, Ross's concern when he found that I was going to teach through Ecclesiastes that I would just leave you guys hanging, and it was going to be a, just a downer. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, the book really takes all 12 chapters to be able to, to get his point across, the observations of all these experiments. And, and uh, yeah, it does look pretty bleak right now, but I'm going to pull from some of the other chapters um, observations that he made that proved that God had finally, finally uh, began to work in him again. God had opened up his heart. He had repented. So we'll be able to, to ask him some of the hard questions when we see him. But in chapter 5, um, verse 10, he says, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundant, abundance with increase. This also is vanity. So he's, he basically just says, For the man that increases wealth for his own gain, um, that it's a sickness, that it's, that it's meaningless. He's not uh, railing on money. We all know that money is, is amoral. You can do extremely good with it or you can do evil with it. But he says that the love of it uh, for gain is, is emptiness. So again, there's no way to draw a conclusion. So uh, I can tell you that the overarching theme and you'll have to read on to prove me, right? The overarching theme is that God is good. And that was verse 2.24. And I'll just go ahead and read these. He said, Nothing is better for man than he should eat and drink, that his soul should enjoy good from his labor. This also, I saw, was from the hand of God. And also, verse 3.11 talks about God saying he has made everything beautiful before its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to end. So that's reconciling with, with uh, this, this uh, observation, just admitting, yeah, okay, I can't figure it out. That's, that's fine. It's God. He exhorts us to fear God. Verse 3.14 says, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, and nothing can be taken from it. God does it, that man should fear before him. And 8.12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. Now, that's not the words of an apostate or someone who doesn't view God with, with love. He understands now. He says the, the deep things of God are unsearchable. In Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, he corroborates that. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And... The summary of the whole book, chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, say it all. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. And the King James says this is man's duty. 
For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So that's our study for tonight. Mm -hmm. Hopefully uh, none of us will ever have to deal with uh, those issues that he did. Just uh, keep focused on God. It doesn't matter how, uh, how many trials come, how many perplexities come. God is in control. God is on the throne. God is worthy of praise. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we know your word does not go, uh, does not return void. So we pray that you would just cause us to be able to bring application if needed, where needed. God, we thank you for these words of wisdom. And Lord, uh, knowing that this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, Lord, help us to glean from Solomon's mistakes. God, to be able to uh, just remain with our eyes on you. Lord, that we would not be overtaken by man or the perplexities of life, the things that seem overwhelming. We know, Lord, that the earth is yours and the fullness thereof. Lord, you're the creator of all that we know and see. We trust, God, that, that for us, you will work out all things for good because we love you and are called according to your purpose. So we just praise you. Thank you, Lord, that you, you don't leave us or forsake us. But Lord, you love us, and we can just take rest in that. Help us to walk in obedience to you, Lord. Learning that from Solomon, that just to be obedient to your commands, Lord, there's reward, there's fullness, there's happiness, there's contentment. Oh Lord, may we truly be content. Lord, to be prudent, but also just to be able to find contentment in the little things in life. Lord, because it is a gift from God. So we give thanks for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.